Our reading today comes from the first letter of John, verses 1 to 4. The first letter of John, reading verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Johnny. Um, Now we're going to spend the next few minutes of our time thinking about that short passage, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 together. Um, It's been ably read for us. I would encourage you please to have it open in front of you if you can, either in physical copy or on a device uh, as I speak on over the next few minutes. But before we think about it together, I'm going to pray and to ask for God's help. So let's pray together. John writes... I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you for the good news of Jesus Christ and for the abundant eternal life that's to be found in knowing him. And so we ask this morning that as we study your word together, we would please understand and appreciate and enjoy that life more and more, and perhaps even for the very first time. We ask these things for our joy and for your glory, and do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, some of you may remember the moment that was picked up a number of years ago by, by a few different news outlets. It was around three years ago um, from the HSBC National Cycling Championships that took place in Norfolk. Those championships involve a road race around the Norfolk coastline and, and through Norwich City Centre. And, and the reason that the race made the news it wasn't for, for reasons of sporting prowess, uh, but for reasons of slapstick comedy. Uh, quite far into the race, uh, the, the pack that were leading the race, the peloton at the front, it went the wrong way. Uh, they reached a roundabout, they were meant to turn right, and they all went straight on. And they carried on for several hundred metres before realising their mistake uh, and that they had to turn back on themselves, which itself was a bit of a riot. Hundreds of cyclists uh, trying to do three-point turns on quite a narrow road. You get the picture. Uh, You can watch the the footage of all of that online, Uh, and whilst the the confusion and the chaos and the kerfuffle is all quite entertaining, what's really interesting is the response of the people who are cycling behind the leading pack. Uh, Because the following group seem to know the correct way to go, that they should turn right rather than go straight on. But you can see the moment of doubt creeping into their minds as they wonder whether the leaders have got it right after all. Surely hundreds of competitors, the leaders of the race, couldn't all have got it wrong, could they? And so amid the confusion and the chaos, 
it leaves them with a rather unsettling decision to make. Should we follow them or should we stick to what we know? And uh, I do wonder if you would describe yourself as being a Christian this morning, if life has ever felt a bit like that for you. It can be a common enough thing, I think, for Christians to feel as though they are a bit of a minority in our culture in Scotland as the only one perhaps in your class or your workplace or your family. And, and that can be an isolating experience. What can be even more isolating and quite unsettling, in fact, is to see people from within that relatively small group of people who identify with the Christian faith peeling off, friends leaving the course of the Christian life, family members twisting the good news of Jesus ever so slightly and believing a distorted version of the Christian faith. For example, a friend of mine went to university quite a number of years ago, and he would have called himself a keen and a clear Christian when he arrived, and he actually went to university to study theology. Uh, only within a relatively short space of time, uh, lecturers and tutors and the authors of the books he was reading had convinced him that actually, well, you can't really be all that sure about the Christian message. He decided within a year or two that he didn't really want to be a Christian anymore. And uh, for the Christian friends around him, that, that, that decision was unsettling. It, it, it changed the dynamic of their relationship in some ways. But it was also personally quite unsettling in their own faith. Has he got it right? They were asking themselves. Well, we've all got it wrong. I mean, he's listening to the experts after all. What do I know? I'm just a simple Christian. Perhaps you've had a similar kind of experience to that yourself. Or maybe it hasn't been quite as stark as that. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe even a member here at Hebron for quite a number of years. And occasionally... You bump into someone who you used to know quite well. It may be from a Christian union at university or, or from church events you may be attended together in the past. And you get to chatting and catching up. And you mention in the passing that you're still part of a church family and you still take your Christian faith very seriously. And the conversation cools noticeably. Of course, they might not be so rude as to laugh or to make fun. But from the raised eyebrow... And the changed tone of voice, it becomes quite clear that they've moved on from that kind of thing. See, taking the Christian faith was, was okay when you were young and you were idealistic and you didn't know any better. But it doesn't really cut it in the real world to be quite so narrow, quite so naive. And again, that can be unsettling, can't it? Trying to stick with the teaching of the Bible as others drift away. Well, that sense of uncertainty, of being deeply unsettled, was just the kind of uncertainty facing John's first readers in 1 John. We are starting, as Rod mentioned, this new series in 1 John this morning. 1 John is a letter written by the same man who wrote John's Gospel and who wrote the book of Revelation. And he wrote it as a letter to a real-life church facing a real-life situation. And we can gather quite a lot about that situation just by reading the letter carefully itself. 
It seems that a group of people from within the church John was writing to were unhappy. It's so unhappy, in fact, that they had departed. And by departed, I don't just mean that they departed from the church. I mean that they'd walked away from the apostles' teaching and had begun to believe something else entirely. Just notice that with me. If you have a Bible, look on to chapter 2 and to verse 19. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. John writes, They went out from us, by whom John means the apostles, but they were not of us, apostles, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. This group of people have departed from the apostles' teaching about Jesus. And we'll see over the weeks to come that they had not just abandoned it altogether, they just gently tweaked it and twisted that teaching about Jesus, about who he was and what he'd come to do. And you might understand why that could be an unsettling thing for the people who were left. It's the spiritual equivalent of of noticing the elite group of cyclists in front of you peeling off the course as you're riding along behind them. Enough to make you wonder, have they really got it right? Am I wrong for sticking with the old, old story? What are these remaining Christians to do? Do they stick with what they know, stick with the apostles' teaching? Or do they follow the levers? That's the question that hangs over this whole letter. And that helps to shape our understanding of John's big outbox, what he's intending this letter to achieve. One of the reasons John wrote this letter was to reassure, to reassure those Christians who had remained, who'd stuck with the apostles' teaching. John is, if you like, a steward at the side of the road race, pointing the right way to go, encouraging these Christians, they're doing the right thing by staying the course with Jesus. And that's just what I hope this letter will do for us too as a church family. That even if others we might see peeling off the course might sometimes make us wonder whether we are right to stick with the Jesus of the Bible or whether we're getting it wrong. That when we stick with the apostles' message about Jesus, we're in the only safe place we can be. More than that, that by sticking close to Jesus... We're in the most wonderful place we can be. That's First John as a whole letter. And that wider lens helps us, I think, as we get into these opening four verses this morning. Because the first four verses of First John work a bit like an overture in a musical. If you're familiar with musicals, an overture is an opening piece of music that trails some of the main themes and the main melodic lines that will be unfurled more fully later on in the musical. And that's a bit like what John does in these first four verses. He introduces a couple of key ideas that he's going to unpack more fully later on. And so we're just going to follow through those uh, in these first four verses in the time we have uh, this morning. We'll do that firstly under the heading, the apostles saw, heard, and touched eternal life, so their message is reliable. Now, some of you might have read in the news this week about a man called Boris L. Dagson. L. Dagson is a photographer who entered a picture into the Sony World Photography Awards. Next slide, please, Michael. Super, thank you. Here's the picture. It's an image which he entitled Pseudomnesia. 
And then he won the award in one of the categories for best photograph. It only it isn't. I mean, it's good if you're into that kind of thing. But it isn't a photograph. What he had entered into the competition wasn't actually a picture of a real-life scene at all. It was an image that he generated completely using software on his computer. That's why the story was in the news. And people often say, don't they, that seeing is believing. But pseudomnesia, if we needed proof, is proof that sometimes it isn't enough to see something to be confident that it really happened. Sometimes you need even more tangible evidence than the evidence of your eyes. And I wonder if some of us here might think similarly about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That in order to believe it, to believe that something quite so extraordinary as the death and resurrection of someone from the dead could really happen, you would need to see it with your own eyes. You would need to hear about it from other people who were there. And you would need even to touch it with your own hands to really be convinced. And if that is you, then let me just say this morning, you aren't the only one. Because the same thing was said by the very first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. As I mentioned a moment or two ago, as well as writing this letter, John wrote an account of Jesus' life that is one of the four that are included in the Bible. And in John's account of the resurrection, in John chapter 20, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, some of his followers were overjoyed. But others still weren't quite sure they could believe it. Until John chapter 20, Jesus appeared in front of some of them in the flesh. Only still, some weren't sure. John chapter 20 verse 25. The other disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Or in other words, hearing about it is good, but hearing about it isn't quite enough. Isn't enough to convince me. To be honest, even seeing isn't quite enough. What I need is to touch, to feel the wounds on Jesus' resurrected body in order to be sure. And as we read on in John's account, Jesus duly obliged. John chapter 20, verse 27. Eight days later, Jesus came and stood among the disciples and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Hearing alone might not be enough for you, Thomas. Neither even might seeing. So listen, take your hand and put it here. Feel for yourself. You can believe that I'm really here in front of you, says Jesus. Now that was persuasive for Thomas personally. It proved to him that Jesus really had risen from the dead as a real historical event. And the reason I mention all of that is that in First John, John starts this whole letter by giving us the same kind of assurance. I wonder if you noticed the same trail of eyewitness, ear witness, touch witness testimony in 1 John chapter 1. Just follow it with me in verse 1. 
that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Hearing and seeing and touching. It's the same chain of evidence as in John's gospel, isn't it? Now, it's worth just pausing there to ask who are the we in verse 1. We have heard, we have seen, we have touched. Is John saying that all people have heard and seen and touched? Or that all Christians, perhaps, have heard and seen and touched? Well, no, he's being more particular than that. In verse 3, he draws a distinction between we, or us, and you, his readers, in verse 3. All of which means that in verse 1, the witnesses he's talking about aren't Christians generally. They are literal eyewitnesses. More particularly in the context of 1 John 1, they are the apostles. The ones who were actually there and testified to it. And the point John's making is that the apostles are witnesses to Jesus, not least to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Ear witnesses, eye witnesses, touch witnesses to the fact that he died and he rose again. They really were there. Now, why does it help us to know that? It will, because it gives us confidence in their testimony, doesn't it? Uh, That when we read the Bible and we listen to the Bible, that we're not listening to, to hearsay or to Chinese whispers or to the imaginings of a select group of people in the first century world. No, we're reading reliable testimony from people who were really there. And you see, when it comes to that fork in the road moment, as we wonder whether to stick with the apostles' teaching or to follow other people as they drift from taking the Christian faith seriously or or twist it into something else altogether, that kind of confidence really matters, doesn't it? Think back on the example of my friend who'd called himself a Christian before going to study theology. What persuaded him to drift from the Christian faith was the belief that the scholars who were teaching him, the authors of the books he was reading, some of whom themselves had drifted from the Christian faith, were authoritative. Because they were professors, after all, and he was a first-year undergraduate. Of course, what they said carried weight with him. Uh, And even those of us who aren't academics might feel similarly as we hear arguments, perhaps from popular authors like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, or perhaps even more so from people who profess to be Christians but deny that the resurrection really happened. Church leaders, even. They're experts. They've spent time studying these things, and I'm not. Should I follow them and stop taking this all so seriously? Well, you see, those professors, those church leaders, may well have spent a long time rising through the ranks of academia or church leadership, might be experts in their field. But they weren't there, were they? I mean, they might argue that the resurrection didn't happen because, well, they can't believe that that sort of thing happens in real life. But they didn't see him. They didn't hear the other witness testimony about his resurrection from people who were there. They didn't put their fingers in the wounds. John did. The apostles did. And so let me encourage you this morning... If you're going to take anyone seriously, if you're going to listen to anybody, can I suggest that we take most seriously the testimony of the multiple people who are actually there, who saw it, 
who touched it, many of whom died because they wouldn't budge from it. The apostles saw, they heard, and they touched eternal life. So listen, their message is reliable. You can trust what they say in the Bible. That's our first point this morning. But it isn't our only point. That isn't the whole story in 1 John 1. Because John doesn't just want us to think of the apostles' testimony as being reliable, that it's about real stuff that really happened, although he does. He wants us to appreciate that it's also remarkable. Let's think about that under our next heading. Next slide, please, Michael. Thank you. The apostles saw, heard, and touched eternal life, so their message is remarkable. Now, I wonder if you noticed when John is talking about the thing that he's witnessed in 1 John chapter 1 with his eyes and his ears and his hands, he doesn't actually say that it was Jesus he witnessed. Did you spot that? He talks instead about verse 1, that which was from the beginning. Or verse 1, the word of life. Or verse 2, the eternal life. Now he is in one sense talking about Jesus. We can see that because of the chain of evidence and how it matches up to John chapter 20. But the reason he doesn't use Jesus' name, I think, in verses 1 and 2 at least, is because he isn't only talking about a historical event that happened a long time ago in the resurrection, though he is. He's also talking about a person whom we can know and relate to right now. And to appreciate that, it might help to spot the boomerang in 1 John chapter 1. I'm guessing you're familiar with how a boomerang works, or at least how it's meant to work. Boomerangs boomerangs have never really worked in my experience. They're generally just quite expensive sticks. What's meant to happen is you throw it out, and it follows a big circular arc before returning to you. There's a boomerang of ideas in 1 John 1 verses 2 and 3. Just follow it with me. Begins verse 2 with God. That life which we have seen was with the Father, says John. So it's God himself and the Lord Jesus with him. The life is called in First John. Begins with God and then moves through the apostles. Verse 2. Those who hear and who see that life. And who then, verse 3, proclaim that life to you. To Christians. So the boomerang has made its its way out from God through the apostles who hear and see to us, to other people. And now just watch as it makes its way back in. Verse 3, so that you, Christians out there, may have fellowship with us apostles, verse 3. And our fellowship as apostles, John continues, is with God himself. Can you see that great big arc from God through the apostles' testimony to people so that those people, people like you and me, through the apostles, might have fellowship or relationship with God? Can you see that arc, that chain? Why is it there? Well, it's one thing, I think, to be persuaded that the apostles' message is reliable, that it's eyewitness testimony. It's quite another thing to be persuaded that it's good that it's worth listening to. Again, just return to the second of the examples I gave in the introduction as you bump into an old friend whom you know from Christian things in years gone by who seems uninterested now. The reason, in my experience at least, that people move on from Christian things at least nine times out of ten is not because they aren't persuaded it's true, 
is that they aren't persuaded that it's worth following. Because there are so many other seemingly more interesting or valuable things to be occupying yourself with as you make your way through life than sticking with the old, old story. And I wonder whether it might feel that way to some of us here today too. That holding on to the literal death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the only way to be made right with the creator God or that obeying the apostles' teaching on all sorts of different things feels like it's a bit of a drag. Well, I wonder if that is you, if you can hear what John is saying this morning. He's saying that his message, his message of eternal life, it isn't just eyewitness testimony. It isn't just something out there. It's a link in a chain. A chain between us and the eternal God. Between us, limited and fragile creatures, and life himself. And that is a remarkable thing. It means that as you face that fork in the road moment and wonder whether it's worth sticking with the Christian faith and taking it all so seriously or not, that it's worth just remembering what you're dealing with when it comes to the Christian faith. Not just whether you'll approve of an abstract set of ideas. It's about knowing God. Having fellowship with the creator of the universe, eternal fellowship with the one who made you, with life himself that we can know and experience for ourselves. That is just the most extraordinary thing we're dealing with. The apostles saw and heard and touched eternal life. So their message isn't just reliable, though it is. It is remarkable. That's our second point this morning. But there is one final piece in the puzzle or link in the chain of what John says in these opening verses. The apostles' message is reliable. It's eyewitness testimony. And it is remarkable. It's about eternal life, about fellowship between us and the creator God. But what does it mean for any of us? How are we practically looped in on that boomerang? Well, John links the ideas together for us, and that's going to be our final point this morning. Finally, and more briefly, the apostles heard, saw, and touched eternal life. So that life is receivable. Now, one of the the really lovely things about being a city city centre church like Hebron is that we often have people here on a Sunday who've just arrived in the city and who are looking around different churches, perhaps for the first time. And if that is you, then we're very, very glad to have you with us this morning. We hope you feel welcome uh, during this morning's service and afterwards too. Uh, But if that is you, let me ask you a question. Uh, I wonder what kind of thing you're looking for as you come to church this morning. Perhaps, alternatively, you're moving on from Hebron soon. I know that some of our students very sadly will be as you graduate and move away from Aberdeen. What will you look for in a church as you move somewhere new? Perhaps you'll be looking for a particular style of Sunday service, whether in the, in the music choices or the, or the relative formality or informality of Sunday gatherings. Maybe you're looking for a church where there are some young people around, either so you can be around people of your own age and there's other people to, to know and spend time with and socialize with, or, or just because you enjoy the buzz of there being young people in a church. Hey, let me just say, neither of those things are unimportant. But it's also worth noting that those things can ebb and flow. 
At least they, they, they can do here at Hebron, even from week to week. Some of our services are slightly more modern than others in style. And, and we have lots and lots of children around Hebron just now, which is wonderful. But that hasn't always been the case. These things can ebb and flow, and they might do the same in any other church you might choose to go to. And so what I would encourage you to look for as a fixed point as you look around churches, whether you're new to Hebron or going somewhere else and looking around, or more to the point, what I think John would encourage you to look for as you look around churches is what is made of the Bible, whether it's taken seriously. Not as an afterthought, not as one of a number of things on the agenda, but in the driving seat. Why? Well, because 1 John 1 verse 3. That which we have seen as apostles and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with his son, Jesus Christ. Can you see the link? The link between the reliable testimony of the apostles and the remarkable eternal fellowship life they tell us about is their proclamation of that message. They're telling it out, or perhaps more pertinent for us, they're writing it down, and are taking hold of it with two hands and believing it. That's how the reliable and remarkable message of abundant life is receivable. Now, it is a supernatural thing. It's something that the Holy Spirit himself is involved in, intimately involved in. And we'll read uh, next week in our studies in the book of James, next Sunday evening, of the word which is implanted within those of us who've trusted Jesus. But nonetheless, believing in this word, the apostle's testimony is how the reliable and remarkable message of abundant life becomes receivable, how we can have it for ourselves. And that is an extraordinary thing, that by listening to these words, the apostles' testimony, by trusting in them, we are looped in on this chain. It's how we experience eternal life, fellowship with the Creator God. And the reason it's worth spelling that out is that it might not always feel like that. See, it might not always look that spectacular as Christians gather around the Bible in home groups week by week to study the Bible together in homes around the city. Or to be honest, my words can often feel pretty unimpressive to me as I stand up here and teach from the Bible week by week, and I can only imagine that it's the same for you too. But the apostles' teaching, the words of the Bible, they are absolute dynamite. Listening to them and what they tell us of the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ and how we can live in right relationship with him. Listening to those words is how we are looped in on this chain, this fellowship with the creator God. Now, I'm aware that that idea might rankle with some of us a bit, not least because there can be a disconnect in lots of people's minds between the apostles' teaching and Jesus Christ. I can believe in in Jesus, you might have heard people say, or you might have thought yourself, but the Apostle Paul wrote a whole heap of stuff I just can't get on board with. You might even own a red-letter Bible, where the words Jesus says are highlighted in red, and the rest of the letters are black. Implication being, the words in red are the ones that matter most, 
and the rest are less important. But can you see how that kind of thinking starts to disintegrate a bit when we put it under the 1 John 1 microscope? You might think of your task as being to see past the apostles' teaching in order to see Jesus clearly. But listen, try to see past the apostles' teaching and you'll miss Jesus altogether. The apostles' words are the way in which we see the Jesus that really lived. Their message was witnessed in history. It's the only one that can bring about abundant and eternal life, fellowship with our creator God. So listen, even as you see others peeling off from that message, twisting it, changing it into a different version of the Christian faith, don't listen. Stick with them. Now, if you're here this morning, and perhaps you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, I wonder if any of that strikes you as a bit of a surprise. I mean, I hope you can see how attractive it is, that the idea that we can know relationship with the Creator God, that we can know eternal life, life himself. But it might surprise you that the Bible authors themselves claim that that message is historically reliable, that it's based on, on verifiable eyewitness experience of Jesus himself, the one who died and rose again. Or perhaps instead you find it surprising that the way we can take hold of that attractive eternal life for ourselves is not just by doing heaps of stuff to please God, but by listening to and believing the apostles' message about the resurrected Jesus Christ. Because you see, people spend lifetimes searching for meaning in life, searching for eternal life, searching for God or for, or for something or someone transcendent. And yet John here is saying, you don't need to search the planet for that. Listen, you're holding it in your hand. Listen to and trust in their message of Jesus' death and resurrection as the means by which we can be made right with God. And you can know eternal fellowship with the creator God. It is reliable. It is utterly remarkable. And my question to you this morning is whether you will receive it for yourself by trusting in him. It's been my hope and my prayer this week, and will continue to be so, that someone here just might. Let me pray for us as we close. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the wonderful truths of the Bible. And the wonderful truths this morning of First John. That the words we have written down before us this morning are reliable. More than that, the words written down are remarkable. Words of eternal life. And we praise you that by believing in those words and what they tell us of you and of ourselves. That we can know fellowship with our creator God. Would you please give us confidence in that if we find ourselves wobbling, even this week? More than that, would you please give us joy in that, in that extraordinary relationship we can experience with our maker, with you? And we pray this morning that for any who've yet to know that to be true of themselves, that they would trust in these words, both as reliable and as remarkable. They would please receive them, receive the implanted word, and that it would rescue them to yourself.
We ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.